Football Twitter's unbelievable, isn't it? Like, it's just on a whole nother level. It's Thursday, May the 13th, and it looks like Lauren James is going to sign for Chelsea, and we know that because you can get Lauren James put on a Chelsea shirt on the Chelsea website, the shirt for next season. Like, just... Silly. Uh, this is a conversation with Carrie Dunn, Dr. Carrie Dunn, author of Pride of the Lionesses, Royal of the Lionesses, uh, Goldigger's fan, early adopter um, of the club, which was really, really nice. Um, Carrie, great to catch up with you and, and hear about um, plans for the new book and just talk WSL and England and all that good stuff. Um, look forward to having you back on post-Olympics. Post we talked about this a little bit when um, we were on with Leah Williamson of, uh, over a year ago, which is just... Clang, oh, name yeah. drop. Yeah, yeah I'll carry just, on. just pick that one up. Um, but um, I wondered if you could, I guess, like highlight the differences that you remember thinking back to covering the World Cup in 2015 versus covering the World Cup in 2019. And maybe we could use that as like a reference point for, um, for the conversation moving forward. Yeah, uh, so 2015... I mean, I look back on it and it just seems kind of like this almost kind of magical, mythical time now. Um, obviously, I, I, I think personally, because I'd never been to Canada before and it was kind of really exciting to be kind of on, on that coast, on the East Coast. And it's always good to go to new places and, you know, go to new towns and meet new people. And you know, it's one of the joys of doing my line of work, I guess. But in terms of the actual coverage and getting... Yeah, column inches and however how many of us are actually out there covering it I mean it wasn't great I mean the opening group matches there were just like three three or four of us from print publications from the UK I mean we had um, BBC journalists too who were kind of working across radio and TV and you know obviously they did very good coverage but in terms of kind of written journalists it's it is a long way to go and I was writing for two publications there because I think at that point sports desks were just like, oh, we're not going to send one of our staff journalists to do that. We'd rather send a freelancer. It's not taking any staffing power away from our sports desks. Um, so, you know, that you know, it was good for me. But in terms of kind of strategy long term, not particularly great that they didn't feel that it was something they would want one of their staff journalists to do. So yes, that was interesting. Um, then also, of course, um, they didn't see it as important enough to kind of hold print deadlines at that point. And Canada is awkward because of its time difference. And if you're kicking off kind of late afternoon as you move further towards the West Coast, um, obviously it's getting very close to your print deadline for, for, for the UK newspapers. And so, so I'd be getting people complaining that there wasn't a report from the match in the morning's paper. I'm like, nothing I can do. The curvature of the earth has ruined that one for you. They're not going to hold it for a, for a Women's World Cup match. Um, obviously, 2019, when we had it in France, slightly different because France isn't kind of obstructive with its with the curvature of the earth. It's uh, only one hour different. So that was that was much different. And of course, also, it's much closer. So if a sports desk wants to send out one of their big hitters, which they did for a couple of days, it's not difficult to do. It's what, it's what an hour and a half on a plane from Luton on EasyJet um, to get to Nice. It costs you, what, 75 quid for a, for a return flight. So it's much less 
financially um, restrictive than going to Canada. And obviously it's also great to see now with WSL coverage, you actually do have sports desks with dedicated women's football reporters. So you are getting regular WSL coverage. Now, I have some reservations about having football reporters and women's football reporters. The fact that they kind of treat it as a kind of silo, that women's football is a different thing to normal football, it annoys me. Um, however, um, I think also we have seen over the past few years, it's difficult for women's football to carve out a niche in coverage unless there is actual dedicated space for it. It's the same with the women's sports supplements. I hate the fact that it's necessary. I would like to see kind of proper decent coverage given to women's sport in the normal sports pages, but we're not getting that. So for the time being, this looks like the way it's gonna to have to be. So yeah, things, things have certainly changed quite a lot in the past six years. When you say that they're like moving, moving towards what you what you've just described, hopefully of having dedicated column inches, uh, you know, multiple people going out from a from a sports desk to cover games live, to cover tournaments and things. Was there a single moment that you can pinpoint where that started to begin to happen in a way that it wasn't happening in Canada, or is that is it just gradually happening as a result of I don't know the way the way that things develop? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a difficult one because I still think. Although some publications still like to kind of big up what they're actually doing for, in terms of women's football coverage and women's sport coverage, I don't think they're necessarily as committed to it as they say they are. Um, so um, I'll tell you this story, I won't name names, but um, it wasn't so long ago that one major publication who does have someone on staff who writes about women's football, um, they emailed me and said, was I going to a major tournament overseas to cover the national team? Because they didn't really want to fork out the money to set spend um, on, on one of their staffers going. They'd rather me as a freelancer go and cover it myself and pay me for what, what I write separately. So, you know, it's gradual, one step forward, two steps back, but um, yeah, hopefully we're getting there. With freelancing and I guess being like a, you know, being self-employed more, more generally, why is it that the most viable route to covering women's football is being a freelancer? <laughs> um, honestly, it's because um, quite a lot of the people who uh, describe themselves as freelancers are going in as students, they're going in as people who want work experience. And so they're going in not necessarily expecting to be paid or they're looking to kind of exchange decent byline space or exposure uh, for the coverage that they're producing. And yeah, um, there are a lot of publications now who are, who are paying freelancers properly for their work. And I think that is important, but yeah, historically, I mean, I'm not saying that doesn't happen in other areas of sports journalism or journalism more generally. I think that is a problem because people are so keen to work in the media that they are willing to kind of, uh, exchange their labour for kind of bylines rather than money. But um, yeah, I think that has happened in women's football, partially because to cover women's football, you have to be quite dedicated to do it because it's not an easy thing to do. You know, just, you know, even in terms of practicalities, they're not, they're not easy grounds to get to. Um, even if you drive, uh, if you don't drive, then it's really tricky. Um, kickoff times, they're not reliable. You can't necessarily access decent reliable stats previously to kind of this season it's really picked up with the Opta stuff so yeah you have to be really really 
dedicated and really want to work in women's football. And so it's kind of um, almost like a labour of love for a lot of people who work in women's football. It's not going to be necessarily um, the most reliable of income streams, but it is something that you believe in and you thus get a lot of job satisfaction. How, how did you get into covering women's football? Like, What was your beginning, I guess, as a, as a journalist in, in this, this field? God, you asked me to go back a very long way now, Josh. Um, it would have been, I guess, properly 2005. So it would have been the Euros, women's Euros that were, that were in England. And I was only kind of doing bits and pieces then because I'd only just gone full-time freelance. And I had always watched women's football and... So this is just kind of the time where I'm thinking, actually, I want to be a sports writer. So I'm just kind of finding my feet. And it's kind of over, the, it's such, it was a real, really gradual thing over the next kind of four or five years that I started kind of writing a lot more about it. Because it's so difficult at that point to get anyone to kind of take it seriously. Again, I remember being in, um, again, a very big name publication office and making a case to um, cover one of the matches live doing you know, the live minute by minute coverage and this would have been 2007 maybe and it was basically just kind of uh, not laughed at but kind of just it hadn't even crossed people's minds that that was something that they should be doing um having said that um by two from the time it was about two years later so 2009 in the euros when England had such a great run. I remember talking to an online editor of another big UK newspaper and saying, we really should be covering these women because, you know, if we if we are saying that we are a sports desk and we have a national team making this bigger run into the final stages of a major competition, we should be covering it. And give him credit, he agreed and we did cover it. So, you know, things were starting to change. Thing kind of around 2009 but again this is something that always kind of worries me a little bit is it has to be kind of masses of success that kind of twist people's arm think oh well England's women are doing well so we'll cover them you don't say that about England men you cover them anyway because they're the England men's team and I think that there is a really really fine line that um that we're walking sometimes I think if England's women aren't doing particularly well, which they're not at the moment, I think it's more difficult for us as journalists to make a case for them to be covered still. And yeah, that's not really not really a good thing. Where do you think we'll be at in, in the next World Cup in terms of coverage? And I suppose, I mean, it's hard to say, but expectations going into that tournament for, for an England team like this one? It's a really tricky one because I think what happens for the next World Cup is really going to depend on what happens at the next Euros, because obviously that being at home and that being kind of right on your doorstep. If they do well at that, I think we'll be looking good for, 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 the, for the World Cup. If they don't, I think it's gonna be not down back down to Canada levels of coverage, but certainly not France levels of coverage. Um, and I think you know, the Olympics is, an, is a fascinating question because obviously it's Team GB. Um, we saw in 2012 um, when Hope picked that squad, it was primarily an England squad with kind of one or two um, others scattered in there. Um, so essentially it probably will 
be we probably will see a, a, a squad that looks very familiar to us from watching England um I'm not sure actually that that will make masses of difference in terms of uh in terms of, kind of football reporters covering the women's team at the Olympics because I don't think a lot of people realize that it's a big deal the women's football competition at the Olympics is, is a big deal because uh, it's not for the men and I don't think that kind of context is in place but having said that if you win a gold medal that's always going to get coverage so again we're kind of we're kind of hamstrung by needing to get success to then kind of point it at and say we deserve to cover this and yeah it's just not something that we see in the men's game. Why is the Olympics more important for women's football than it is for men's football? Um, because obviously it's the women's senior team playing in the in the Olympics rather than kind of one of the uh, age group squads and also because <laughs> the squads that have qualified traditionally have always been kind of the first choice uh, national teams so we see the USA doing brilliantly we see Germany doing really really well we see these players these stars that we're used to watching and we see them at the Olympics um, I guess it's a bit like uh, how the tennis competitions pro progressed in the Olympics over recent decades it's it's fascinating to watch do you think that's always going to be the case Will we always see like first team well, predominantly England players, I suppose, in Team GB, but Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland as well. Is it always going to be those players representing Team GB at the Olympics? Do you know what? I really hope not. I really want, at some point in the future, I want one of the other home nations to qualify first, so then they get dibs on picking the Olympic squad. Because, you know, I remember talking to Kim Little before the 2012 Olympics, and there was kind of question marks at that point around whether the other FAs would want their players to be part of you know a squad under the English FA and Kim Little was like yeah I understand all those arguments but I really want to be part of the Olympics and I think pretty much most female players would feel that way because as I say it is a big deal for, for women's football so you know I think it would be really sad if players like you know Jess Fishlock for example um uh, you know, the rest of the rest of the world squad who have done so brilliantly in, in, in recent years under Jane Ludlow. Um, and they mentioned Kim Nittle, um, you know, Emma Mitchell, you know, all, Caroline Weir, all these fantastic players who might not get the chance to play in an Olympic squad. So, yes, I really want one of the other home nations to qualify first so they get first dibs and then the England players can just sit it out or maybe one or two of them scattered in. Mm. Did you cover the Olympics in 2012 in London? Um, I covered it a little bit, but I mostly just went to the matches because I went as a fan. I went mm. with my dad and a couple of road trips. It was good fun. What any any standout memories? Um, <laughs> I remember being overcharged for a baguette at Wembley. That was really annoying, but <laughs> that could be any trip to Wembley. Um, no, I specifically remember that one. Now, I, we were there for um, England Brazil, and I think it was then when I was kind of thinking that things really are starting to change when you put, bought the papers the next morning and you've got Steph Horton on the front page and I was thinking oh this is this is exciting I, I can't remember you know a time when I could have envisaged this happening so it was at that point when you saw kind of a full Wembley and you saw kind of the media interest I was thinking maybe things are starting to change. Mm. 
Where's where's your favourite ground in in the UK to watch games? Oh, what the, see, favourite is such a nebulous concept. Is okay, like... let's let's say favourite <laughs> favourite as a fan. If you were just a fan going to a match, where were you most excited to go? Let's have a think. Now, see, when I've been following men's football and when I've gone to men's football for work, I'm very nearly at the 92 club. So that is a lot of grounds to think about and a lot of kind of um, extinct grounds now that I've also been to because I'm really getting on a bit. Um, in terms of women's football, <laughs> some of the grounds that you get sent to for matches are really shoddy. Um I'm just thinking about uh, one match that I got sent to cover and it was actually not far from where I live now in northwest London and it was a men's non-league ground and they hadn't emptied the bins and stuff from the day's previous men's match on the Saturday. It was just gross. But favourite grounds as a fan? Okay. I have to say I am very fond of the new Wembley and I didn't think I would be um, because I'm a sentimentalist and I love the old Wembley and I used to like going there. But I think going to Wembley as a fan is because it's always for a big occasion. It's never kind of, yes, you're rocking up to see what happens. It always means something. So as a fan, it's always a great experience, no matter kind of what then happens on the pitch, because it's always a big deal. Um, in terms of um, watching WSL matches, I'm still very fond of Arsenal's Meadow Park, Boreham Wood, and I don't know why, because I always hate going there, like the actual journey there, because it's an absolute pain in the backside from my house because I don't drive. So I have to kind of get like three buses or I have to get an Uber and cost myself like 30 quid. But I really like the fact that you still have terracing and you can still sit down behind the goal. And yeah, I really, really enjoy that still. Um, I grew up as a Luton fan, so I obviously have a soft spot in my heart uh, for Kenilworth Road still. But I guess that was never kind of a favourite experience. It was just kind of sentimental. Mm -hmm. I'm with you on Wembley. I went to one game at the old Wembley. I think it was the penultimate game that England played there. It was a friendly against Ukraine and England won 2-0. And it was like me, my dad, my granddad, my cousin. I was just great. Um, the new Wembley I really like. The only caveat to what you've said about it being special occasion is being a Spurs fan and going to home games. It just got such, it just became such a drag to be like, oh, I could That's be getting just one. just being a Spurs fan, yeah, yeah. that is the ground's fault. <laughs> Maybe you're right, but there'd be, you know, there'd be games where, yeah, it would be a special occasion, but then it's just like, oh, it's a league game against whoever, and we're going to maybe not play that well, and the journey's really long in a way that, yeah, when you're going for a for a final or semi-final, like if some of the Champions League games were amazing, obviously, but it, yeah, the, the novelty wore off fairly quickly, but that might be being a Spurs fan, like you say. <laughs> With this current group of England players, um, mm. uh, Jesse on, and we were talking a little bit about, you know, who gets into the Olympic squad and based on, is it based on form for clubs and all, all those sorts of factors. How do you compare this current crop of England players with World Cup squad of 2019 or maybe even going back to 2015 or, or earlier? How, like, how good is this team? Well, I think there are kind of two questions there. I mean, how good they are and how good they should be. Because I have to say, in the past, well, what, 18 months, I've not been that impressed with them in terms of performances. 
but occasionally they've kind of dug the result out, which is kind of what you need, I suppose, when you're going into tournaments, but we're not going into a tournament, well, the Olympics, but um, I wasn't that impressed with the recent friendlies. Um, obviously, that was a time to start experimenting with selections and, and with tactics. Um, I guess comparing them to previous squads, I mean, yes, you would have to say they're fitter, they're more athletic, but then that's what you'd expect from professional footballers in a way that, you know, they weren't, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly. I have felt disappointed with the squad in those recent matches, those recent friendlies, watching it and just thinking, I can't see where the spark of brilliance is going to come from. I mean, they, they will work. They will work really hard. They will run all day for you. I guess I've been kind of looking at the younger players and thinking, maybe now is the time to start building your squad around you, the likes of Lauren Hemp, for example. Um, she's been kind of uh, the, the shining point, I guess, of the of the recent friendlies. Well, you've got a lot of experience in there as well, a lot of big tournament experience. Um, obviously, Steph Horton and Ellen White are still there. They've been there kind of for the past 10 years. So, you know, there's... There should be a good blend of youth and experience. There should be kind of presumably a, a, a new coach kind of bringing a fresh outlook to it. But I haven't seen that in, in the recent games. And I'm just kind of thinking, there's not really that long to sort this out before we go into, into proper tournament play. So, um, yeah, I think perhaps if they want to learn anything from, let's say, 2015, it would be that kind of I wonder whether it's the togetherness. That was what the thing that I loved most about covering the England squad in Canada in 2015 is watching a group who clearly enjoyed playing alongside each other. They didn't necessarily weren't necessarily best friends, but they respected each other as footballers and they worked really hard for each other. And I haven't, you know, with the with the pandemic and, and the lockdown, I haven't been able to kind of get to any of the recent friendlies or cover any of them. And I think that would be what I would point to. So you need to be like this squad. You need to be kind of running yourselves into the ground for each other and you need to do whatever it takes to get the win. And I think that there's this, they are some way towards doing that. But one of the things about 2015 that I remember was that the substitutions were always impactful. So they had Fran Kirby to call on off the bench. Alex Greenwood was another who was coming on as sub and making a difference. And I think maybe that's a little bit what Lauren Hemp showed in the recent friendlies, which is why that was kind of quite exciting to watch. And I think, yes, that's a player who can make a difference when you've got a really turgid game and nothing is happening and it's not looking creative and no one really has an idea of what they're doing. Um, again, it's a difficult situation because you've got a, an interim coach. We're waiting for Serena Wiegman to come in. So, you know, what will she do when she comes in? Will she be selecting the same squad? Will she be looking at a different system of playing? Will she even have the same captain? We don't know. So it's an odd kind of limbo, I suppose, for the England players. Perhaps I'm being a little bit harsh now I've talked it through. No, I think, I think that's fair. I mean, the interesting thing, I think, is watching some of these players play for their clubs and they play for such... Some of these teams are so dominant. Like, okay, mm. Chelsea it may be an anomaly to, to score four goals against Bayern Munich. Maybe that's an anomaly. But like, some of these players, they're just they're playing in such good teams. And then you just, for me anyway, you think, okay, well, great. Let's we'll see that for England. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I suppose the yeah the mixture of 
the mixture of the new coach and this kind of time between tournaments is always is always tricky. But I think it's okay to have you know fairly lofty expectations for a group like this, right? Like it makes sense that we should be thinking, okay, we got to semi final in 2019, and we're you know, could argue unlucky not to not to beat the States. Like, let's let's be thinking, let's be one of the best teams in the tournament again. Well, I thought in 2019 that I was disappointed with that. I really thought they should have done better. And I thought Phil Neville's kind of dismissal of winning a bronze medal prior to the third, fourth place playoff was actually quite offensive because 2015's achievement was a genuine achievement. It overcame a lot of obstacles to get there. Obviously, the the, the, the Bassa own goal, um, overcoming that obstacle, that kind of um, that long-time bugbear of you know of playing Germany, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, 2015 was a really big deal, and for 2019, and to be kind of talking about as if you're going to win it, and then not actually doing any better than they had done four years previously, and kind of shrugging it aside as if it was. As, as if a bronze medal is nothing. I thought that was kind of bad. And then, yes, I have lofty expectations for England in that I think that this squad with its investment and with the calibre of players that they have, I think they should be you know, right up there. They should be competing in finals for major tournaments. But I guess on the flip side, I don't necessarily have lofty expectations at the moment based on recent form as England. But you're quite right. You mean, you watch these players week in, week out for their clubs and you're not seeing them replicate that with England at the moment. How do you summarise the Phil Neville era? What can we take away from his time as England manager, maybe as fans of the team, but then also kind of contextualising it as like the development of English women's football? I think we take away from the Phil Neville era, he didn't take the job under the best of circumstances. I mean, we all know um, why the job was vacant. And we also know that other managers who we might have wanted to see in the job weren't interested in taking it. So, you know, it's not a great circumstance to take over um, a job. What he did bring to the squad and you know, this cannot be denied. It was he brought a lot of mainstream media interest and a lot of those journalists I saw out in France in 2019, the men, the big heavyweight broadsheet and tabloid men uh, from the big columns in, on the, in, their, in their sports desks were coming out there. And that wasn't because they wanted to watch the England women. It's because the manager is Phil Neville, someone that they've covered for, you know, 30 years and someone that they already knew they were there to cover Phil Neville's team, not the England team. So that has its own issues, but I guess the fact that there was mainstream media coverage to that extent was a good thing. Um, I think a lot of the media attention has then, as we've seen, led to increased investment in the women's game. Now, obviously it's not directly because of Phil Neville, but it's kind of concurrent, I suppose. So we're seeing investment and sponsorship at the top level, which is a good thing. We then need to see how that trickles down to the grassroots, um, which is something I've been bagging on about for years, as you know. So I guess we will see probably five to 10 years time what the true impact of the Phil Neville era has been. I mean, I think as a coach, he obviously he's not not hugely experienced still. I mean, it's it seems quite stunning to me that he's kind of walked into another plum job, but 
you know, they had their own reasons as well for appointing him. So, you know, good luck to him, I guess. I mean, I think, again, I, I'm kind of harking back another 15 years and just thinking how Hope Powell spent her entire life trying to organise a women's international football structure for England, top to bottom, including the junior team when the players weren't, weren't full-time still. And compare that to what Phil Neville had. I mean, it, it's leaps and bounds. It's come on so massively. So, yes, um, media coverage, increased investment. Um, we'll leave aside whether or not the team was, in fact, any better, because I'm not sure it was. I think it should have been, they should have done much better than they did in 2019. But, um, yeah, gone now. New era. Yeah. Um, when you think of uh, Farrah Williams, like, what, what comes to mind? Do you know what? Farrah Williams is an absolute legend. and Everyone's going to say it because everyone's going to say exactly the same things as she kind of goes on her little retirement tour now. Um, I remember interviewing Farrah when I was having my highlights done. <laughs> I would admit I've been chasing her for ages to do this preview. Um, was it must be just before the World Cup because that was why her schedule was so kind of compressed. It was like the, the uh, press officer said, Farrah's around this morning. I can get her on the phone for you in 10 minutes. I'm like, I'm literally just having my highlights done still, but that's fine. I can talk to Farrah with foils on my head. So this is the olden times, obviously, when you can still have your highlights done. Um, yeah, and she's just so, I guess, so modest. And she's kind of got such an interesting way of talking about things. I mean, everyone knows about you know, Farrah's backstory, which only really came out in the, in, in the past few years. And to balance that kind of background with, with her achievements, the level that she's still playing at now at this point in her career is yeah, it's just incredible. I think we're, we're lucky to have watched her. Yeah, I, I was just looking up some of her numbers, like 172 caps for England. It's just like, it's just such a big number. It's, it's not, it is. It's, it is. I mean, if you look at the caps, again, if you're looking at the caps records for England players over kind of the past 20, 30 years, you know, sometimes I don't really tell the whole story because there was a time when these women were only playing like two or three matches a year if there wasn't a tournament. Obviously, Farrah's had that kind of step over into this kind of full-time era when you are getting friendlies, when you're getting tournaments, when you're getting your invitational for team tournaments, that kind of thing. So to have that level of longevity, I guess, and consistency, and to be able to play at that level for so long and get so many caps, and yeah, it's, it's just amazing. Who who was like who was Farrah Williams before Farrah Williams? Like who in, in terms of player, like who who did she evolve from? And then oh, who would goodness. you say is like the next, like who's the evolution of of, of Farrah Williams? Oh, that's a really good question, Josh. I mean, there are so many brilliant midfielders from England's history. And you know, it, it's interesting as well because um, this book that I'm working on now, I'm looking at kind of more of the history of, of women's football, particularly uh, English women's football and some of the international teams. And so many of these players who were picked as midfielders and got moved back to play sweeper or vice versa, because they didn't have the time to do training 
every every week or you know they were, maybe they train once a week with their clubs but they weren't having kind of England camps they'd show up the day before a match and they'd be like can you do a job for us here or whatever so you know you've got players like Gillian Coulthard who was the England captain for such a long stretch in the 80s and 90s a fantastic defensive midfielder who kind of moved a little bit further back so I you know I think she would be kind of one of the ones that that I would point to um, but there's so many great creative midfielders who have played for England and just haven't had the recognition. Well, not just midfielders. We're looking at the likes of Brenda Sampari, uh, the likes of Debbie Bampton. Um, and going back further than that, we're looking towards those players who are playing in the 70s. Uh, people like uh, Carol Thomas, the, the England captain, the first to 50. And these women's achievements and then that 50 caps, like I was saying, was a massive deal then because you're only playing three or four matches a year. So there's a fantastic long tradition of women who are incredibly committed to the England cause and you know giving up their free time to go away and play for England and racking up a huge number of caps as you know, Jill Coulter did, as Carol Thomas did. Um, in terms of who's coming through next, that's a really interesting one, isn't it? I mean, any of those Man City midfields, that Man City midfield is going to be a heck of a midfield. Probably in two or three years' time, they're going to be world beaters. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's it's funny. I was chatting to Jesse. We talked about the, the England friendly. The, the second friendly against Canada, when England started with Nobbs and Stanway as like the two, two Hollywood builders. Looking at that, thinking these are both players who... You can press them and it doesn't bother them. Like they can turn out of trouble, no, no problem at all. They can both like run with the ball, carry the ball. Can both like make late runs. Like Jordan Nobbs is big on like make the run off the shoulder of the midfielder because no midfielder wants to run towards their own goal like that. And obviously Stanway plays, you know, as a 10 or even higher up the pitch mm -hmm. sometimes for City. But then like Kira Walsh, when she plays there, it's it's so much it's it's short passes and it's like control the tempo of the game a little bit and then Jill Scott is the like kind of box the box like I guess more kind of prototypical can could win things in the air but is also good with her feet um and I feel like from watching from watching Farrah, Farrah, from watching Farrah Williams it's it's bits and pieces everywhere you know it's 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 long long range goals and it's tackles and it's all the passing stuff. And I just feel like she seems like one of these players who's just so heavily influenced the, the generation that come after her. Mm. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Uh, because obviously, as you say, you know, Farrah's kind of famous for her, for her dead ball skills as well. Have that level of ability on the ball just, is just, yeah, it's, just, it's amazing to watch and always has been. Um, and I, you know, I hope in some ways her kind of versatility and adaptability is something that is inspiring the next generation or two of, uh, of players coming through. Because I think that versatility is, is important, particularly when you get to tournament play. Mm. Who, do, do, do you think of her as an Everton player? I'm trying to think. Right, stop talking. We'll think. How do I think of her when I think of her? Yes. Yeah, I see her in an Everton kit. Which is weird because I also watched her quite a lot when she was at Arsenal because it was not not too far from me as the crow flies. Played so many games for Everton, but then has mm. also yeah 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 had these Liverpool and Arsenal and, and Reading and like yeah to still be doing it in the top flight is is just so so impressive. You watched Chelsea Bayern Munich. Yeah. What were your takeaways? What were your takeaways from that game? Oh my goodness! 
wasn't that a heck of a match. It was, it was, it was amazing. Um, I was so pleased. Um, I really like Emma Hayes. I just think she's just so much fun, but also just so kind of, she's so no nonsense. And she's also a brilliant tactical mind. And I just like the way she kind of deals with everything. And I loved the fact that she did kind of lose her grip on her emotions a little bit at the final whistle because normally she's just so kind of bullish and in control and it was lovely and I shed a tear or two myself but yeah I really enjoyed that match I thought it was it was absolute great example of what she has done on her Chelsea project over the past what is it 10 years now it just how she's been allowed to build her squad, just kind of quietly get on with it. The fact that she's been backed with money and to be able to add those level of uh, international stars to her squad. And yeah, to be in their Champions League final, you know, it's, a, it, it's a massive step for them. Have you spent time around her? Like, what, what's she like in person? <laughs> yeah, um, I remember I interviewed her for a profile feature a couple of years back. And we met in a coffee shop in the centre of town. And we kept, I kept asking my questions and then she'd answer them and she'd go off on a tangent to tell me about something else. Then she'd be like, oh, actually, you can't put that in. That made me look really bad. <laughs> she just kind of had no real filter, but enough of a filter to, to actually know, no, I can't say that. But then, you know, she's out on BT Sport, uh, effing and blinding, then not actually realising she's still on live TV. So maybe she doesn't have any filter. Yeah. But one of my favourite things about watching um, watching games with no crowds is that you can hear the coaches communicate. Mm. And she's just, she's so good to listen to during the game. The way she, like, my favourite is when she just yells, Sam, Sam, drop, or like, Sam, in. And it's just these, like, really short, concise bits of bits of information. Um, which, yeah, you don't, you know, when, when King's Meadow's full and it's, it's rocking, I've chatted to Flo about that, Flo says that commentating at King's Meadow is just like a proper, proper atmosphere. And you just can't mm. really have that when you don't, you don't get those little tidbits, I suppose, when, um, when, the crowd's, when the crowd's there. No, she's fascinating to talk to. She has a really kind of interesting perspective on things and, as we say, you know, brilliant tactically. Um, actually, funnily enough, on my Facebook memories this morning, um, I've been to a Chelsea press event a few years back and someone had asked her, she just signed, it must be not long after Crystal Dunn had signed, and someone asked Emma, um, do you have initiation rituals for your players? And she said, no. And the person followed up with, why not? And she said, because we're not men. And I just thought that was brilliant. <laughs> that's that's funny. God, some of the some of the players who've been at Chelsea over the, over the time she's been there, it's like, I mean, like, to well, I suppose that it kind of puts into perspective even more how big this achievement is with this squad, because it's not like this is the first time that they've had fantastic players. It's this combination of mm. uh, of, of players is one thing and the way that the way that um, the teams, the team has gelled, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Um, and obviously you've got Kerr and Kirby and Harder kind of um, hogging the limelight, I guess. Um, but I think we also saw in their recent matches, how important Magda Eriksson is to them, because it's her kind of calm head and you know, leadership that really holds that team together. 
So I think that has been a really kind of important observation in part in the past few weeks. Obviously, um, Emma Hayes knows that she was very kind of circumspect about talking about Ericsson's fitness and um, before each of the recent games that she missed. Yeah, I think also, you know, Ericsson at centre-back means Sophie Engel can play in midfield and that's just mm. like a, just a bit more, a bit more calm. What do you rate their chances in, in the final against Barcelona? I mean, they're going with a decent chance. Barcelona have been excellent this season. Um, I watched the first kind of 40 minutes of, of the match against PSG, uh, the match on Sunday against PSG. They played very, very well. I think it's going to be a really good game. So I think, you know, for, for either team, it's going to be a massive achievement. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Anything to say on Man City and kind of them as, I guess, very clearly the second best team then and how, how, what that squad needs to do to to get better and push Chelsea next year? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it, with Man City? Because it looked like it was going to be a proper two-horse race and it just really hasn't turned out to be. I know that everyone was kind of billing the uh, match a few weeks back as the title decided, but I don't know. I thought, I thought it was already you know, fairly obvious. I thought Chelsea were only going to throw it away if they weren't going to win it. And, um, yeah, I think... It's been interesting with the way that uh, Gareth Taylor has put his squad together this season. Um, obviously, they've had their uh, their Americans uh, as 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 of so many squads this season. Um, I think they need to be thinking about what they're doing with with goal scoring, kind of long term. Really, it seems to be something that um, that, that they've they, they've racked up lots of goals in kind of individual matches. But I think they just need to have a kind of a long-term plan. I mean, as I say, that midfield is going to be great in a couple of years' time. And it looks like that's what he seems to be trying to do. They seems to be kind of bringing the younger players through now. Perhaps it's going to be next year or the year after that they're, that they're really going to, going to mature and get that right balance. What was your reaction when, uh, when you found out Joe Montemiro was leaving Arsenal? Um, I wasn't surprised, if I'm honest. Um, so we got the kind of email saying we're having a press call this afternoon, Joe Montemurro is leaving end of the season. And having been in a lot of the virtual press conferences with Joe Montemurro this season, he's always a very thoughtful kind of chap to talk to. And he's actually always one of the managers I always look forward to talking to because he does think about what he says and he's kind of generous with his time as well. He'll give you proper answers to things. And I wouldn't be surprised if so this this whole situation in being in lockdown uh, over the course of a year. I mean, that that has been stressful for everybody. And I think it's the kind of thing that makes you think about what do I want to do next with my job? And I think it's completely understandable that he would want to move on at this point. Obviously, two years ago, they won WSL. He's going to leave them presumably, in, uh, in, uh, in the Champions League for, for next season. That must have been his goal at the start of the season. There has to come a point where you think, OK, that's the end of what I can do with this squad. It's time for someone else to take over. So I, I think I'm sad that he's moving on in that I think he is a net asset for the Women's Super League. But in terms of understanding why someone would want to move on from a role, I would understand that from him. Mm. Who, who do you think who do you think comes in to replace him isn't it again it's a really interesting vacancy isn't it there are so many good coaches 
who are, are, are around. I mean, it's not going to be Jane Ladlow, which I know a lot of people were thinking because she's taken up this Youth Academy job at Man City, which is a bit of a surprise. Um, Casey Stoney's ruled herself out already, <laughs> despite no one actually linking her with it, but she was very quick to say that she wasn't interested. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm not sure. I mean, for a long time, Kelly Smith looked like she was being lined up uh, as an assistant, someone to step into uh, uh, Pedro Martinez's um, uh, shoes. But um, who knows? It's, it's going to be an interesting one. Yeah, we'll see. Um, to finish then, you said that the, the book you're working on now, you're kind of looking back, I suppose, a bit more at the, the history of women's football. What, what, can we, what can we look forward to in terms of what this book's going to cover? What were your motivations for writing it? And, uh, and how are you feeling about it coming up next year? Um, well, I guess uh, since writing Raw of the Lionesses and Pride of the Lionesses, I mean, people have been very kind about them. And, but a lot of people have also said to me, they'd like to read more about the history of women's football because I try and kind of scatter some history in both of those books, you know, talk to players you know, from the 60s and kind of put things into context. But I think a lot of the de developments we've talked about over the, over the past uh, kind of hour or so, um, with the progress of women's football, with the increased investment in women's football, I think it's quite easy to ignore what happened before the WSL was fully professional. And let's not forget, WSL has only been fully professional for a couple of years, and it was only semi-professional from 2011 onwards. That is not a long time. And I think that what was done, how hard a lot of people worked to keep women's football going over the previous century is quite easily just ignored or made invisible, I guess, rather than ignored. Perhaps I'm not saying that it's a deliberate decision to go, oh, we can't talk about that. People just don't know because it wasn't talked about. So what I want to do with this book is tell some of the stories of the people who were there from the past century, the same way as I covered a season in the life of women's football up and down the pyramid in my two previous books. I'm kind of covering a century in the life of women's football in this new one and telling some of these stories and some of the, yeah, I guess, some of the legends, some of the myths, some of the key players. So, um, Yes, there's people like Lily Parr who played for Dick Cares Ladies, but there's also Lizzie Ashcroft who took over the captaincy of Dick Cares Ladies from her. Um, the suffragette known as Helen Graham who organized the British Ladies football team. Uh, people like Wendy Owen who played in the first uh, official England team. People like Chris Lockwood and Leah Caleb and Jill Sale who played in the unofficial England team who went to Mexico and were then banned when they came back. They were all only 13 and 14 when they went out there. You imagine what that was like. Um, people like Jill Coulthard that we talked about earlier um, that, you know, who got so many caps for England and has only just been recognised with her MBE. So, and I think also one of the other stories that's more recent that I think we don't talk about enough is when Notts County folded just before the spring series started. They were gonna play Arsenal in like two or three days time. And we seem to have completely forgotten that that happened. We, you know, we, we point to the men's game and say, look at the danger that there are when men's clubs fold. 
we just let one of our teams drop out at the elite level of women's football and we haven't really talked about it since you know there were players like Carly Telford there at the time you know these players are still around why why is this kind of been ignored so yeah lots of these kind of stories to try and give a kind of more of a personalized uh, history I guess of the women's game over the past century sounds fantastic look forward to look forward to reading it best of luck of all the writing Thank you. I need it. <laughs> nearly there. Nearly there. I'm about three quarters of the way there. It's, this is the most difficult bit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, thank you so much for your time, Carrie. Really appreciate it. Lovely to speak to you. And, thank uh, you for having I'm me. Sure we'll do it again at some point. Let's hope so.